Hello and welcome to our 5G and IoT special. I'm delighted to present an hour of opinion, discussion, information and ideas from two industry experts, all on the areas of 5G, IoT and edge computing. Our first expert is Scott Stoneham, who is an independent technology analyst and connector. He focuses on technologies with purpose. Scott is passionate about discovering companies using technology to do good for the planet and all of its inhabitants. Scott's work can be found on www.wellthatsinteresting.tech. Please contact him via the website. Our second guest is an old friend of the podcast, although not too old himself, Russell McHugh. Russell represents a number of startups in the US market in diverse areas such as smart agriculture, IoT, 5G managed services, metering, connected cars, and software testing. You can contact Russell via, the, via LinkedIn. This is a great and fun podcast with two knowledgeable industry experts who dissect and analyze 5G, IoT, and edge computing trends. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. And finally, we play out on one of David Bowie's most incredible pieces of music, I'm sure you'll know what it is once you hear the first few chords. Enjoy this. This podcast is sponsored by Netzer, Digital First Selling. During these times of COVID and falling telco sales, Digital First Selling is the answer to new customer acquisition, increasing revenues and cost reduction. If you are a telco, an MVNO or an eSIM provider, we have the ideal Digital First Selling as a Service solution for you. The Netzer Digital First Selling solution enables you to sell and onboard remotely. It will integrate with your BSS and OSS systems and with Salesforce, and we meet all regulatory requirements. Contact pat.flynn at netzer.com so that we can understand your issues and provide you with the best solution. Welcome to the podcast. And um, this week we thought we'd try a different format. So we have three people on the podcast, including myself. Uh, we have Scott Stoneham, who is an independent technology analyst. And he says technology with a purpose, which I don't really understand. So we'll let Scott explain that in a minute. And we have a friend of the podcast, Russell McHugh, who is a business development man based in California and has a lot of views on IoT, which I found very interesting. So first of all, guys, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Pat. Good to be with you again. Great to be here. So what we thought we'd talk about is the famous savior of the world that's coming over the hill right now, which is 5G, fifth generation mobile technology. But to set it off, we thought we'd, first of all, just maybe I'm going to ask Scott just to say what 5G is. We've had 2G, 3G, 4G, and we're on to 5G. Maybe, Scott, if you could just have a few words about what exactly 5G is for the audience. Mm -hmm. um, so it's quite interesting. Um, in many senses, it's just an evolution, but in most senses, it's completely different. And depending on who you talk to about it, you get a different perspective of it. So from the point of view of being just another generation, you know, 5G means fifth generation. It's the fifth generation of mobile network. 
that uh, it's currently being deployed. So that follows the fourth generation, third generation. So all you have to do is count, really, <laughs> to be a telecom engineer. Um, <laughs> that's going to get me into a lot of trouble with my well, telecom. Some of them mightn't be able to make that uh, step, Scott. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but then... Um, but then, seriously, it's um, there's so many fundamental changes that 5G brings along that it, it does it a complete disservice to really just say it's another generation. Um, I think uh, the media and a lot of people get caught up with focusing on things like millimeter wave, which is a piece of 5G. And that's the piece that, um, you know, it's part of the radio frequency, how, how, the, uh, how the devices talk to the network over these millimeter waves as kind of radio frequencies. But 5G is not just that. It's a lot more. 5G can work on the existing um, frequency bands that the mobile operators use today. So there's, it, it continues the growth and kind of um, development of, of that. But it, as you go back in through the mobile operator into the network, 5G addresses so many different parts of the network that it is, it is fundamentally changing how networks are being built, how they're being rolled out, and the future that they will play in our, in our world, basically. Okay. Yeah, just just to add to that, um, Pat. So then, what 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 Scott has laid out there from a technical perspective and the continuation, as as, as he described from the, the two, three, and four G, now we're onto five G. So the 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 obvious thing is the the whole set of new services that are possible because of five G. So. You know, if we're looking at it, you know, can we describe 5G as transformational? And theoretically, it is transformational. It's going to allow a whole bunch of new services that we haven't, well, we, we have thought about them before. And, you know, to an extent, they're out there today. Everything from augmented reality, self-driving cars, there's a role for it to be played in that. So with the adoption of 5G, we're going to see a tremendous sort of rollout of new services. And that's yeah. because of the fundamental features that 5G is offering, higher bandwidth, lower latency, and all of those things that we read about in the press is going to enable all of these things. Yeah, I mean, is it true that 5G will require a magnitude increase in the number of cell sites, although they will be much smaller? Is that well, what the typical layout yeah. will be? Yeah, so maybe we can get onto that. Um, but I just want to come back on something Russell said, because this is a really important point. Um, the... the Yes, it's going to create so many new types of services. Um, but going back to what I was saying about how it's just another generation um, without underplaying it, the aspect here that I want to explore is that um, like 2G, 3G, 4G, um, it's one of those things where the operators and the ecosystem need to believe in it before they understand what it's really going to be. Because these new technologies, these new capabilities um, are going to create things that we don't know yet. And if we look back, um, if we look back through the previous generations, I was heavily involved in the rollout of 3G when I was working at Vodafone. And you know, the the um, the kind of primary, the hero use case for that was, if you remember, these flip phones with cameras. And everybody was going to be taking photos. We were going to have two-way video calling. And this is around, oh, was it 2003? Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, that's how the business case was justified. These wonderful new multimedia services. Everybody was going to be sending um, MP3s to each other and sharing them and downloading them from the operator's own kind of private portals. We called them walled gardens back then. But really, that idea that we had for 3G didn't really materialize for the masses until 2016, when WhatsApp built their own service and they reached, I think it was a billion users worldwide. 
in 2016. So if you think about it, the 3G use case was starting to be built around the end of the 1990s. Um, There's a lot of kind of speculation about what the services might be, how it might work, the benefits it would bring to consumers, to businesses, to the operators, to advertising as well. That was a big one back then as well. And we built it. And guess what? Those things didn't work. They took another 16 years to work. But new things came along that we'd never seen before, like the iPhone, the app stores. These things came on the back of um, 3G. And when 4G came along, then we started to see the kind of streaming services. We started to see the development of, um, you know, the, uh, over the over the top players like WhatsApp um, and FaceTime as well to be able to deliver the video services that we had envisioned way back in the beginning of 3G. But actually 4G created a whole bunch of other services that were never envisioned at the beginning of that as well. So the point is with this is that a lot of the problems um, and miscommunication and the difference between hyperbole and hype, I guess, that we have in, in the world today with 5G is that the whole industry is pretty much guessing as to what's going to be the, the killer use case for 5G. Now, we have some pretty good ideas of what categories they will be in. So, Russell, you mentioned some of those already. Autonomous vehicles, there's going to be a... Well, well, yes. well Scott, before we get into that, like, first of all, um, yeah, I concur with what you said, because I remember getting them on my first camera phone and thinking, this is great, but I quickly ran out of things to take pictures of and who to send them to. But it was actually the development of the WhatsApp, but also, say, Facebook and so on. This It was social media that generates the content that is shared on 3G and 4G. So, yeah, absolutely. And we weren't even thinking of that. Okay, I know there was some early attempts at social media back in the noughties, MySpace and so on, but it wasn't until they took hold that we had this huge generation of data, our personal data. I mean, what do you think, Russell? Do you think that's fair enough? I think that's a fair comment. I mean, so so what, what Scott was alluding to there is the fact that it gives rise to these other sort of uh, buckets of industry, if we can call it that, that, that actually start because of the connectivity enablement that, you know, these next generation are able to give us. So if we look at 5G, you can, it, it already is sort of given sort of a whole new lease of life to the idea of a private network. So we've got the wide area network, which is, you know, going out there using your phone and, you know, the, the rollout, you know, here in the United States, for example, um, Verizon and all the major networks are pushing on very, very quickly with the rollout of their of 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 the five G networks. That's one aspect of it, and that is incremental to the four G world that we've had already. Now you get into the whole area of private networks, and this is where five G gives whole a whole new meaning to that. So the idea of building a network that you can control if you're the the owner of your um, retail or or industrial or you know, um, distribution center, whatever it is. Now you've got a whole new sort of private network capability that you really didn't have before. Right. So then we, then we start, you know, go okay, ahead. Okay, so, so this is where we're getting into use cases. So, so let me just quickly say, I, I think, you know, the film Field of Dreams and the famous phrase that came from that, you know, if you, if you build it, they will come. So, right. so we're at that stage now. So what we're in the process of the early build, the early devices. What's going to come? Scott, do you want to have a crack at that? <clears throat> what's yeah, going interrupt, to... in, interrupt me if I go on one of my monologues again. No, it's okay. Um, no, no, but, so, uh, it's okay. I mean, we're, it's just going to be freeform, guys. You'll, so you'll, you'll, you'll be cut. You, you can cut out 20, 80% of it. Leave just the no, 20%. I know, I'm leaving this in, by the way. 
<laughs> That's fine. <laughs> fine by me. It all adds to the authenticity of it. Uh, so, so yeah. So I think yeah. Where are we? Where are we today? Um, there's still a lot of talk around the hype of what it's going to be, um, and I think yeah. Um, you have some very senior leaders from the telco telco industry attending things like the World Economic Forum and Davos and telling us it's going to create all of these wonderful things. And maybe we don't need to go there right now. We can talk about that when we start talking about future. Um, your question is, you know, what do we have right now? Well, um, there's lots and lots of trials going on, which is which is great. And the trials are designed, one, to test the uh, the infrastructure of the hardware, you know, the whole, all of the technical specifications. Um, but they're also designed to test to see what works and what customers actually want. Now, I think the first tangible, really concrete use case that was rolled out almost immediately is what's called fixed wireless access. So this is essentially a way of being able to get high-speed internet broadband, if you like, um, to houses and homes and offices that were otherwise left high and dry when it came to um, fixed line or um, other mobile connectivity. So what happens here is you have a box that you stick on your window. That box on the inside of the house or the office gives you the wireless coverage, the Wi-Fi coverage, or even the cellular coverage indoors. But then off the back of it, connecting out to the network, it's using um, quite targeted um, and uh, tuned 5G um, signals to connect you back into the network. Now, that's a very tangible, easy to understand benefit. And it's actually being used for good uh, in terms of um, helping break down the digital divide, giving people access to high-speed internet where they haven't been able to have it before. So, so it's, uh, that's essentially gigabit, gigabit uh, internet, yeah? Yeah, so, I mean, you can get um, very high speeds um, through, through the 5G network. Um, now, how much they're actually going to deliver to the home um, out of that is, I think, a commercial discussion is going to be based on whatever the operators want to do and want to provide at the price point you want. So, yeah, it could be gigabits. Um, I think the first one in the UK to do it was 3UK. They came out pretty strong with, with their um, FWA fixed wireless access proposition. Um, so that was been that, I think, is the first tangible 5G thing that can only be done on 5G, really. Um, but then we do have the whole world of IoT. And Russell, maybe you want to talk about the world of IoT, pre-5G, 5G, and that kind of blur in between. Yeah, and, and, and that's an area, that world of pre-5G and the low-power, long-range um, radio technologies that are out there, that has only really begun to take hold in the last, re I, I'm going to say the last five years or so. So if you take, for example, Laura Wan, LoRaWAN was only invented as a radio technology back in 2012, so it started to be really commercialized from about 2016 onwards. And it's still, still to this day, there's, um, there's new parties jumping on, on that. Like, for example, this week, uh, Amazon have made a major announcement about uh, uh, LoRaWAN enabling AWS, for example. And, uh, you know, the reason it, just to spend a, spend a moment on it, the reason that LoRa and these other low-power sort of IoT technologies have um, have sort of grown is because the operators, the mobile operators or the carriers, as we call them here in the States, haven't been able to provide coverage to enable services to ag and, um, you know, these, these broad-based serv services that, uh, that, uh, that are out there. So LoRa filled that gap. It basically filled a coverage gap 
and and as a result of that filling that coverage gap it grew rapidly and and it's still growing so you know that's the world of iot as we know today on that very low power long range kind of stuff now so an interesting side note on on that um the uh and this will bring us on to something maybe later on about the future of 5G as well. But Amazon Sidewalk. Um, so Amazon Sidewalk is, uh, as I understand it, some proprietary extension of the LoRa technology that's being embedded into their consumer devices. And, uh, you know, it, it creates this uh, local area network through which devices mesh. can communicate with each other. And mesh then networking. Yeah, mesh network. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? Do you think that's a uh, well? How how would you look at that if you were a mobile operator? Yeah, you got to be looking at it with uh, with some some some. I won't say trepidation, but you got to look at it very very closely because potentially, you know, if we look at the number of Alexa devices and um, Ring devices and all of these hardware devices that Amazon has got in each and every home. They've got the hardware, if you like, to create those access points. Now, can they, you know, they've asked themselves the question, can they extend that to, a, say, a, a mile square kind of network? Somebody's got a dog with a tag on it. And if it goes out and gets lost in the neighborhood through this uh, sidewalk network, you can actually track and maybe potentially find your dog again. So that's what they're saying that is going to be beneficial for that. I'm sure they've got visions of better services or more enhanced services that they're going to offer through it. But that's an example of you know, where the world of IoT is today. So it's very much, um, it's very, very dynamic and it's very active in sort of rolling out that, that, um, that low power uh, IoT world. Now, when you come to the world of 5G, where does it make sense? You start talking about industrial IoT. I think now we're going to go back to the, to the site, uh, the industrial site, the airport, the ports. And I think in Europe, there, there's, there's quite a few of those that, now maybe Scott, you, you, would, you would call them sort of trial rollouts, but there's quite a few implementations already, as I understand from the research that I've done, you know, in ports like Rotterdam and Hamburg and Antwerp, some of the bigger ports in Europe, they're already rolling out 5G. Uh, so, so, so just for the audience here, how can a port roll out 5G? I mean, surely it's the mobile operator who has all the expertise. You know, how, how is this going to actually physically work? You say it's happened already. Well, I'm going to have a crack at that in terms of, you know, you would think that the, 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 the system integrator of choice to roll out anything to do with 5G would be the operator. But there are yeah. new players coming into that that are acting, that have the ability to roll out special managed services that in the past, these guys might have built up expertise rolling out Wi-Fi networks. Now they're rolling out 5G networks. So in terms of what, what you need to do, and, and Scott can help us out on this in describing, what do you need to do to bring up a private 5G network? You need some form of a base station. You need connectivity to the internet, and you need a, a bunch of access points. You need, but you need spectrum, and you need a license, don't you? Well, you don't, because five G is actually open. And Scott, you can help us on describing the spectrum requirements. Five G. I mean, it is open. So I'll, I'll, I'll let Scott sort of uh, maybe explain that to us. Yeah. So I mean, these are some of the very interesting things as to where five G might take us in the future. Um, so when I was describing kind of you know, what it is and how it's evolved, um, this is one of the areas that has, <clears throat> that has seen a lot of kind of development. So traditionally in your 2G, 3G, 4G networks, the, the radio frequencies that those technologies were used were very, very tightly bound to certain frequencies. And then those frequencies were 
very carefully controlled by the local regulators and they were auctioned for <laughs> ridiculous prices. What was, what was the 3G auction? I think it was in the UK, <laughs> was 62 billion or something, wasn't it? Was it 32 yeah. billion? Yeah. It's snip. It's snip at the price. <laughs> exactly. I'll have two, please. Um, so, but with 5G, they, they've, they've created the technology to be a little more agnostic in terms of the spectrum, the frequencies it can work over. And yes, there's still going to be these kind of managed areas of frequencies, these managed spectrums that the regulators are going to control and you'll have to bid on them and you'll have to go to the auctions and buy your slice of airwaves, if you like. But then it's also been developed to support, and this is what Russell was alluding to, um, development and deployment across what's called unlicensed spectrum. So when you um, fire up your Wi-Fi at home, that's using airwave, um, you know, radio waves across the air as well. That's operating in certain bandwidths in certain um, frequency zones that are allocated as kind of open, open for use as long as you don't abuse them too much. Um, now, there's pros and cons for that. It's free, but you don't find many factories um, relying on um, on uh, on Wi-Fi too much because it gets a noisy space. And by noisy, it means that the signals don't travel very well. And when they do, they can be unreliable. And you only have to live, I don't know, in Paris, in an apartment in Paris where everybody's got their Wi-Fi on, everybody's got these Wi-Fi boxes from free maybe or orange. And uh, to find out that when you open up your Wi-Fi list, you've got 400 different access points you can connect to. All of that makes noise in the air. Now, that's because it's all um, all un unlicensed, uncontrolled. You don't get that so much in traditional mobile networks because um, the planning is very rigorous and very highly controlled, as I said, and you know, licensed. But the great thing about 5G when it comes to unlicensed is it means that you can go out and buy your 5G network kit, your base stations um, and your, your, your radio access network and all of that stuff that you need to make a network. You can put it into your factory, into your port, and you can run it over these unlicensed networks if you want. And you okay, don't need to go and spend 62 billion on <laughs> licenses yeah. to run your port. So, so is, 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 has anybody done this up to today? Is there any examples of this? I think yeah, there are most there... of us. Sorry, Russell, you please go ahead, go ahead Scott. Yeah. No, I was going to say that there are multiple examples of it today. Um, factories, industrial um, centers, and particularly in Northern Europe, um, if we start throwing out some player names, you know, Kia, Ericsson, that this is what they do. Is they, you know they're pioneering the sort of the whole idea of building out these private networks. So there there are many examples of it, and you know we're on the edge of seeing particularly in the manufacturing world, we're on the edge of seeing robotics and these uh, autonomous vehicles within factory environments that are going to become much more dependent on 5G or these 5G private networks. So that stuff is is starting to roll out, uh, you know, a lot more seriously, okay. I would say, right now. So, so we're at the start of, the, of, the, of this being sort of common common case in industrial plants or ports or transport hubs or something like that. Correct. And what about the what about the software? Is the software where does that come from? The core, the core software that runs the network. Yeah, so that's another interesting development. And I'll I'll just say as well for completeness that it was possible to run 4G technology in unlicensed um, spectrum as well. It just it just never really got the attention or traction that I think we're going to see with 5G. 
Okay. Um, so your question about the core. So the core of the network is, um, if you imagine you've got your mobile device, connects to a base station of your, of your wireless network, that base station then goes back into all the kind of computing power a mobile network has. That computing power is responsible for access control, for billing, for provisioning, all of those wonderful things that make it possible for you to use your network, um, to use your mobile on the network. To-date, most of that, nearly all of that, has been done in the operator's base station, uh, in the operator's own data center, or through a partner, or through a specialist entity on specialist hardware, whether it's Ericsson hardware, Nokia hardware, um, NEC or Huawei. Um, not so much nowadays in Europe or USA, but you know, it's on those kind of um, on those kind of boxes. But with five G, um, there's this. Uh, um, option to run that complicated, sophisticated proprietary code and software in on tradition on what you would now so called cloud cloud architectures on a AWS if you want Amazon Web Service or something like that. So it means that again as an operator you don't have to have all of this kit, all of this hardware in your own in your own networks anymore. You can just you know do what everybody else does nowadays and let Amazon bother running it. But I'm not sure how Amazon We'll run it for the operators, but we can talk about yeah. that again later on. I saw somewhere that uh, Nemvino in UK, I think, has moved its, all its core to Amazon. Just I, I read about it this week or last week. Yeah, and I think um, yeah, this is. I was always surprised that the the lack of um, diversity when it came to MNOs. Um, and I think there'll be a, a new opportunity at MVNOs. I mean, sorry. I think there'll be a new opportunity, a new lease of life for new types of MVNOs. And let's explain that. So an MVNO is a mobile virtual network operator. So this is somebody who basically buys access, wholesale access to a, an MNO, a mobile network operator, um, so that they can provide that service to their customer under their brand. A UK example of that would be Virgin Mobile. They... Um, they buy access to EE's network, and EE manages all the all the network, runs the network, and Virgin just buy it in wholesale access. Um, so, re why I'm saying I'm surprised, and this is there was a lot of attempts to go down the MBNO route in Europe. I think um, Germany was was very strong on MBNOs. They had, um, you know, the coffee brand Chibo, mm -hmm. Chibo. Yeah, there was a Chibo. Uh, uh, <laughs> mobile virtual network. So if you were a Chibo, Chibo Chibo, I don't know how to say it, sorry. Um, you could have your own, if you were identified with that brand, you'd have your own uh, Chibo mobile phone um, or network. Whereas in the UK, it always seemed to be about um, either brand equity. So, you know, I'm a Virgin customer, I'm going to have a Virgin um, phone. Or it's about um, no frills, low cost, um, easy, easy to understand plans, gift gaff, talk, talk, those kind of things. Um, but what I think the real opportunity for MVNOs um, is as a mobile network, you're deploying this very expensive infrastructure across the entire nation. And you've got competitors doing exactly the same thing. But you're trying to be everything to everyone. And it's really difficult to be everything to everyone. So if you could say, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm going to um, not play in the student market. I'm going to let uh, somebody else take all of the student market from me. They're going to run it over my network. So I still get a slice of the slice of the business, but I don't have to focus my marketing engine on, you know, attracting sure. students. It's probably yeah. not the place I want to go. 
So then you have somebody else who's a very strong um, brand in the student market. It could be a bank, for instance. I know they play strong in student markets. Or it could be, you know, the students' unions or, or even the university itself. They could be an MBO and address that market. Now, that hasn't really happened. But now if we take some of the things we talked about earlier on and some of the names we talked about earlier on, with the development of unlicensed spectrum, with the ability to run the core in the cloud, mm-hmm. you're kind of decoupling a lot of what um, was originally tightly embedded into the mobile network. You're making it much easier for other people to do that. And if you're a strong brand, I mean, the, the internet service companies, Google, um, Amazon, Facebook, they have you know, these, these NPS scores, a net promoter score mm-hmm. in the high 70s, which is really good. That's it's a really high. high score. Very high, yeah. Mobile networks in the UK and you know, mostly across Europe as well, they're around six or seven. So an order of magnitude difference. A lot of people see um, buying airtime or access to the mobile network as a tax to using their phone rather than something valuable. Mm. So now you let, let, let's get Rosa in on this. What's Rosa? What what's your feeling? Is is this going to play in North America as well? What do you, uh, what's the MVNO situation there? Oh, uh, on the discussion around the the whole world of five G, we haven't had you know the MVNO thing in the past in the US has been very very strong. Um, I'm just trying to think of the likes of Amped, and so there has been a lot. I haven't heard a whole lot of discussion around the concept of the MVNO coming into the world of 5G, because right now here in, in the North American market, like I say, on the wide area side of it, it's the likes of Verizon, T-Mobile, AT&T, they're promoting, their, you know, they're trying to tie their brand to the whole concept of 5G. And the, the, the private networking side, you know, the industrial guys, they're starting to seriously look at it right now. Mm-hmm. So that whole area is starting to grow much more aggressively. You know, the, the idea of being able to set up a, <clears throat> a private 5G network on a factory or on a, on a campus environment or in a, in a stadium. So there's a lot, a lot of discussions around setting it up for stadiums and being able to, you know, take advantage of all these multiple camera angles and all that kind of thing that, that the high data bandwidth is going to give you. So that, you know, again, going back to that sort of industrial IoT, that's the discussion that's emerging here in North America right now and where 5G will enable, you know, we, politically, just to, to throw a little bit of a political wrench in here, the idea of bringing these factories back to the United States, they're talking about being able to enable those factories with, uh, you know, robots and the, the the autonomous vehicles that you need to operate them. So that discussion is 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 very hot over here at the moment. And that's, you know, does how does 5G play into that? Um, the, the idea is to be able to quickly throw up a dedicated network, get that network planning out of the way, have some kind of a control. The, the, my understanding is that, you know, from device management and all of that, that's fairly straightforward in the private networking side. So I think over the next, say, year, 18 months, we're going to see a lot more discussion around, you know, private 5G networks coming of age here. So let me feed back to you what I'm hearing, guys. Um, so the, the big monolithic mobile operator, by some strange lack of foresight as is a proven technology that's going to undermine them in the future in the sense that there's enablement of MVNOs, which there may be good reasons to go in MVNO, as Scott just said, but also a lot of the the potential 
um, site, you might call site-focused communications, and that would be data and voice, could be done privately via slicing the, the spectrum. So is, is this another issue? Did the mobile industry shoot itself in the foot again, shall we say? <laughs> I, I don't think, you know, we're, we're jumping over timeframes here, backwards and forwards. Um, so the idea of these 5G MVNOs, for me, that's quite a future vision thing. You know, I think we're looking 10 years out for that kind of thing. Um, the idea of being able to have um, your 5G core in the cloud, um, that's coming, but it's from the operators I speak to, it's about third on the list, really. So right now, the focus is on what's called the enhanced mobile broadband. So this is faster speeds than a handset. This is fixed wireless access fits in there as well. And that's about faster, more stuff faster. And it's not just faster. It's about making, you know, one of the things that 5G does is it allows you to have more things going faster in the same area. So higher capacity. So as we're all using more and more phones to do more and more streaming and all of that stuff, you need that capacity. So that's a big play for them. Mm-hmm. The area that Russell's talking about, um, you know, the uh, the private networks, we haven't even touched on edge computing and mobile edge computing and fog networks and all of that stuff, which also coming in 5G. Right, I, I, I think that's a topic we should cover, but let's finish finish your point. Yeah. So okay. I'm saying that that's kind of the next step after after the mobile broadband. And right. this is where we're seeing a lot of development going on. We touched on ports as well. You're right. There's so much you know, um, happening in the port of Rotterdam. So much invention going on there and innovation. Yeah, you know, I did an article recently on um, some of the work they're doing to manage distribution of renewable energy across the border of Rotterdam. It's 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 amazing. BT are in the final stages, I think, of setting up um, a, a system in Belfast. I think it is in Belfast Harbour, um, and uh, it's really interesting to see how they position that. They talk a lot about kind of autonomous vehicles, connected this, connected that. But ultimately what they're starting with, they're starting with connectivity, fast connectivity and internet of things. So again, coming back to those things at the beginning. Can, can, I, can I just throw something here? One of my bugbears is the idea that an autonomous vehicle requires 5G, but th- that an autonomous vehicle requires any, relies on any radio communication all with a palm, with a palm because we all know it's not reliable. So is that just... Is that uh, part of the hype cycle about 5G? Surely autonomous vehicles should be autonomous. (laughs) So um, you could, a year ago, maybe longer ago, you could uh, walk down California and you could see all of these autonomous vehicles driving around and there was no 5G. So you don't need 5G for autonomous vehicles. Also in um, a previous role, I was working at a company called IHS Market and we had a very big automotive division. So I got the opportunity to speak with some of the big brands. And they were saying, if you think that we're going to hand over safety of our passengers to a mobile network, <laughs> you, must, you must be out of your mind. <laughs> so no, absolutely. An autonomous vehicle needs to make decisions in its own right about driving and obstacle avoidance and all of that stuff. However, this is where, and I think, um, Russell, you did throw this term in as well earlier on, connected cars. So mm-hmm. beyond the autonomous <clears throat> operation of a, of a car, you're going to have a huge amount of connectivity. And this connectivity is going to be for all sorts of things like uh, 
as I call it, see ahead or something like that, see further. Yeah, so non-line non of sight and all of that kind of thing. So, so you're you're right in that sense. So, the, the idea of the self-driving car is sort of one one bucket again, if I can use that word, of of those autonomous vehicles out there. So, the self-driving car should be able to power power itself. And these are the ones that you you were talking about seeing on the. I, I've seen them and driven alongside them on the 101 south of San Francisco, for example. You see the self-driving car and the engineer going along with their hands up in the air like this. And that was that was all powered by onboard computing, and and then what what you're talking about here, Scott, is the the idea of having some kind of connectivity between cars. That's the whole idea of this connected um, or cellular vehicle to everything, cellular vehicle to X. They call mm -hmm. it CV to X. So you have line of sight, which we see today. When I'm driving my car, I can see everything in front of me. But with non-line of sight coming up to an intersection, for example, the CV2X will allow the car to see around the corner and see what's behind it and all that kind of thing. And that's another layer of sort of enabling this hopefully safer self-driving sort of world that we're moving into. That's, you know, at this stage is a kind of a it's, a, it's, it's starting to appear commercially and more and more car companies are actually beginning to apply it and, and put it into their cars. Um, so again, that's one aspect of this whole idea of autonomous vehicles. Now, what I was thinking about more in the, in the industrial world is where you need deterministic connectivity so if we talk about robots and we talk about other AGVs, these autonomous guided vehicles in, in a factory environment, we need to know that they have dependent connectivity, you know, to do their job to, because you don't want them off by a second or 30 seconds or whatever it is to actually get that. So they, they have to work on that kind of right. microsecond timing. And in the factory environment or in the industrial environment, 5G will enable that. And it will make the you know the, these factories as efficient as they are today. It'll make them way more efficient. Mm. Yeah. It's probably got to make them a lot more flexible too, because you know, clearly there's no wires. If if you know what I mean. Oh, absolutely. Then when it comes, Pat, you know, you're bringing up the idea of flexibility. You know, today you've got sensors in factories. They have to be powered. Um, they have to be connected. Some of them have to be connected via Ethernet and all of that because of. Um, regulations speed, and, yeah. and, and speed and, and again mm. that guaranteed connectivity that they have to have but in the world of 5g you're going to introduce tremendous flexibility the ability to change up your factory lines very quickly and all of that kind of thing because you won't have those wires that right. are going to be in the way so yeah but that's a slightly slightly different can, can i just can i just sort of feedback where i think we are in this which is really wide-ranging discussion here and mm. really fascinating so so 5g is coming we, we can see some things that are going to are already starting to happen, such as uh, site focused 5G slicing, such as fixed wireless access for broad, uh, probably mostly rural broadband. Um, and we're guessing, I won't say guessing, that's unfair, but we're estimating that there's other, other areas such as the autonomous vehicle, which won't rely on 5G, but will be greatly enhanced by it. Yeah. Where I else mean, can... Sorry, go ahead, please. So just on that piece, because I think it's important to say, I think you're between Russell and myself, we've covered both the kind of um, passenger autonomous vehicles and the robotic autonomous vehicles in, in warehouses and things. Mm -hmm. And Ocado um, is a is a very big player in this space. You know, they're, they're doing some amazing things. Just to who's, try and... Who's, sorry, who's that, Scott? Ocado. Okay. Um, they, they're doing a lot in terms of robotic platforms for grocery stores and retails. And retail they worked a lot initially with waitrose in the uk um so 
I just want to try and put it into some kind of perspective as well to give some um, context. Um, a few years ago, I was working with a virtual reality company that was trying to create um, immersive family virtual reality experiences. So you would go to this place, you would all, the whole family would put on the, um, the backpack and the VR and everything, and they would take part in the same immersive experience. Now they wanted to run this as in the same kind of way as maybe a cinema would run where you turn up and you go and have a bit of fun for a couple of hours or 20 minutes. Um, so, so, so just for the, the gas on for me, what is that? Is that you put all this on and suddenly you're walking around the moon and you're fighting aliens? Is except you're actually... something like that? Yeah, yeah. Some, yeah. They they didn't go commercial with this, so I can't say too much at the moment. But yeah. there are others. Um, there are others out there that, that do something similar. But the idea, yeah, the one that I experienced was a fairly stereotypical Jurassic World where it was mixed reality. So I was pulling levers, pressing buttons, and seeing these Tyrannosaurus Rex you know, appear in front of me. And I could tell you for hours about this experience. It was amazing. But the key thing to it was that they could only have four people um, in the experience at any one time, which meant it was really difficult to monetize. If you can imagine a cinema where you can only have four people, it, it just doesn't work. And the reason for that was to do with how long it took to exchange messages across the network, and the network was Wi-Fi. If they... If you know they needed a minimum of 200 and, or yeah, a maximum, sorry, of 250 millisecond latency. So that's the time it takes to exchange these messages. And when you had a fifth person in, they needed something that was faster than the network was capable of. And the outcome of that would mean that if you had five people, people would bump into each other because they wouldn't realize where they were in the experience. Right. Uh, so they were limited by this thing called latency. Mm. Now, so, with, so so maybe just for people who are, uh, you know, not engineers like us who eat, drink and live this all day long. I'll just say, explain what latency is, maybe in simple terms. Okay, so latency is if you're standing at one end of a field and I'm standing at the other end of the field and we want to exchange a message using a, um, an American football, maybe? Or did we just call it a football? Um, yes. And I, I write the message on the football and I throw it to you. It's the time it takes for that ball to get from my hand to your hand. That's latency. Right, so, and... And the, the point the point about and I'm, I'm pulling these figures out of the head but the mm -hmm. out of the out of my head but the point about latency on five G compared to four G is that it's an order of magnitude faster or almost we say almost negligible shall we say uh, potentially I think you know the, we talk about this one millisecond latency which is a bit of a um, I think a bit of a myth as to whether we'll actually get to that but even if we get to twenty milliseconds in that that I was just telling you about this uh, VR experience. They could have four people at 250 milliseconds. If they could bring it down to 20 milliseconds, each experience could have 10 times the number of people in it. Okay. So suddenly that business case becomes much more powerful because they're using a technology that's faster, quicker, more efficient. Okay, so, so this is a technical issue that has great commercial impact in real life, is what you're saying. Now, one, one example here of this is, is robotic surgery, so that you're you're a patient in somewhere in without hospitals and the robot will roll up and take out your appendix is is this going to be what we're looking forward to oh who wants to start on this one <laughs> i get quite passionate about this um so russell do you want to have a I, I, I don't know much about this <laughs> I, haven't even thought, I mean tele telemedicine I mean, I mean look at if we were to jump to sort of the COVID world right now um, the idea of telemedicine has been around for for a long time. I, I know a company here in San Diego, for example, that has been trying to push push forward the idea of the virtual hospital visit. 
uh, and post-hospital visit and all of that, because of COVID, you know, that sort of stuff is beginning to permeate a lot more and there's been changing in the, in the rules with respect to insurance plans supporting that. So the idea of telemedicine is starting to jump and I think 5G is going to sort of, sort of accelerate that. I mean, robotic surgery is a completely other world. I mean, there you're, you're getting into hospitals, as we know, are highly regulated environments. Mm. Any kind of a surgery is a, is a, is a highly regulated sort of uh, process. So the question is, when, when are we going to see that? That's very futuristic. Scott, I'll, I'll let you go. So, um, <clears throat> I'm being, so provo- I, uh, I'm being uh, a bit provocative here, guys. No, 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 it's good. It's good because I love this topic. Um, now, um, I focus, as you mentioned, at the beginning on um, technology with purpose. So that's things that actually have a real meaning in this world, um, normally aligned to the UN SDGs, uh, Sustainable Development Goals. So one of the things I look for when I'm looking at technologies like 5G is what good is it doing to people? Now, there's a, it's quite difficult to find things to do with environment or climate or things like that. But health is, a, is actually a very strong area for 5G, but not with remote robotic surgery. So just to be clear, what we t- what kind of is is meant by that when we throw that term out there, the idea is that you turn up to a very expensive hospital, which has got all of these MRI machines around, all of these wonderful, expensive, um, highly clean, sterile environments, and the surgeon's not there. Um, so, but what you do, the surgeon is somewhere else, unable to attend, and he's going to control a robot. Um, um, to perform this surgery. Well, you know what, in these places, they're going to have a fixed line. They're gonna have fiber. These hospitals are not in the middle of the wilderness. They're connected places. So the idea that your robot's going to require 5G to do the surgery is kind of wrong. They could argue that it's not the robot that needs the 5G, it's the surgeon because he was backpacking up the Alps. (laughs) Suddenly he's called on to come and do, but I mean, in near term, we're not gonna have 5G in that kind of capacity in the Alps either. So, yeah, so, so this is stretching kind of, it. This is stretching. Yeah, it's stretching. Now, there are places in, in the medical area where it's going to work really nicely. And I've already seen, seen this. Um, two years ago, I witnessed the first Roma, they called it the remote robotic surgery at Mobile World Congress. But really what it was, it was remote guidance. So it was effectively, I don't mean to dumb it down because there was a tremendous amount of technology achievement that went into it. But you had, a sur- you had a surgeon from another hospital on the other side of, of Europe guiding a more junior um, surgeon or maybe who's somebody who wasn't specialist in that area using effectively um, video call. Mm. So he was able to do that in real time with very, very little latency because he could see you know, what was going on. He wasn't controlling a robot, but that's a use case that might work. But again, Hospitals have fixed um, fixed connectivity as well. So why they use five G? Yeah, why would they bother? Just to demonstrate. Exactly. Yeah. Did, listen, they, uh, sorry, uh, Scott. What I was just wondering is um, we've covered a wide range of topics now. Um, would you would you like to move on to the edge computing case, which I think is pretty fascinating? Yeah, we can we can do that. I think. Um, is there just, any other area we should talk about? I think yeah. Let's. There's in in the IoT space. I think there. Um, um, it's quite interesting how IoT suddenly became a poster child for 5G when, you know, like we've been saying, it's kind of been there for quite a while. <laughs> but there are some things that are being deployed with IoT, um, particularly in agriculture. I'm particularly interested in some of those things. Um, so for the likes of um, soil sensors, um, there's a use case in the US 
of a uh, of a farm of a uh, you know a uh, an industrial sized farm that was able through the deployment of soil sensors connected to 5G networks reduce their water consumption by 40% and increase their yield by 5%. So from a planetary point of view reducing water consumption i think was it is it 90 or 95 percent i'm picking this one out of the air because i read it earlier um of water consumed on this planet is used for irrigation mm. it's, yeah. it's an astonishing it's very level. very high yeah so if you can cut your consumption by 40 percent, that's a very very good thing to do and this is being enabled by you know soil sensors in the ground connected over 5g networks and then also well, to just, to do that, just, just in time water you might say yeah. well <laughs> Uh, there was I, I was part of another project in Spain as well, where um, <clears throat> um, they were looking at different. I mean, there's <clears throat> when you get look into these specific industries and you start to understand the things they look at, it's, it's astonishing. So there was this whole study about soil substrates and how you stack different soils on top of each other and how that impacts the growth of the plant and the health of the plant. But one of the key, the two key things that really affected it, apart from soil substrate, is how wet it got and when in the plant growing cycle <clears throat> and also how much sunlight. So this company I was looking at was doing, was looking at um, sensors that measured both soil moisture levels um, as well as sunlight. And for every 1% degradation in sunlight, you can expect a 1% um, decline in your yield, which when you're operating these huge um, greenhouses, it's, it's astonishing. But the soil, the, the moisture thing, you got to get the right amount of water at the right time. Too much and you damage it. Too little, you damage it. So it's a really precise engineering um, feat. And these, these sensors can help help do that. But you don't need millisecond for that. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's an interesting one to kind of look at. Russell, do you have anything on that? So on the, the idea of, you know, the edge computing and bringing it in, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of proponents out there. Again, they're pushing sort of on-site um solutions around the whole idea of adopting iot networks and stuff like that um right now you know you, you typically you put your sensor in you've got some kind of a gateway it goes up to the cloud but how much of that could we actually do locally mm. and and how much more beneficial could it be you know we talk about sensors um you know these sensors obviously generate a lot of data you're pumping that data up to the cloud ultimately that's going to have some kind of a carbon impact, if we could sort of uh, normalize it and extract some anomalies locally from the sensor, uh, that could make an awful lot of sense. Um, for example, if you're running vibration sensors, you're, you're, if you're, uh, you're looking to monitor a piece of equipment and you're looking to monitor it pretty much continuously. Mm -hmm. So if you had some kind of edge computing capability at that at the sensor on the piece of equipment or piece of kit that you're actually monitoring and it's just sending you the anomalies or it's just sending you the information that you want, right. then that makes an awful lot of sense. And then by extension, you could extend that to practically any sensor. You know, you can put local sort of a local operating environment on it. The edge computer, you know, the computing is actually happening at effectively at the edge or at the sensor. Sure. So that stuff starts to make an awful lot more sense where you've got a very, very dense environment where you've got a very de um, high density of sensors and gateways and all that kind of kit that you have in your environment. So that's where I see edge computing. Obviously, it's going to be some kind of a symbiotic relationship. You'll have a, some element of processing locally uh, on your sensors, and then you'll have a cloud for, for visualizing all of that. 
Okay, no, that, that's uh, that I can see that it's a matter of design, really, as yeah. proper design. And actually, if you think about the connected car or autonomous vehicle conversation we had earlier, you could imagine that that network is operating on the edge. They're communicating with each other and communicating with the cloud as they need. Um, Sorry, could I put it, could I put it to you this way? I mean, is there a business opportunity for mobile operators in edge computing? What, you know, as I understand it, the, the, so the optimum place for the, for the processing is maybe at the sensor and at the other extreme, it might be in the, uh, say, Amazon Cloud or Google Cloud or wherever. But is there, a, is there a median place where, for various reasons of, uh, you know, latency at a, at a network level? What do you think of that? Is there a business case for operators to, to look at this? Well, I was going to say it's, it's probably going to come down to, you know, and, and a lot of IoT projects come down to what is the actual use case? What are you trying to measure? Um, and that sort of defines what you want to do. So, you know, as, as I, I talked about the, the case of using vibration sensors, if you can compute them at the edge, that makes a lot of sense. Now, on the other extreme, if you're just measuring gas pipelines and you're looking for leaks in them and you haven't had a leak for five years, then, you know, <laughs> you know in that instance, if, it's, if it just notifies you once in five years, then that, that's, that's fine. So I don't know about the, the, the mobile operator having a role to play in all of that. I mean, their business typically is connectivity and selling SIM cards. Um, I don't know, Scott, do you want to do you want to try and tackle that one? Yeah, um, and then I've got an interesting statistic on the amount of data that doesn't need to be transmitted in the edge of the game. <laughs> right. Weird don't it's, be giving the operators such a hard time, Scott. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a mind-blowing number, and I relate to it in, in London buses. So let's come back to it in just a moment. Um, but the mobile edge piece, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's the balance. What you're trying to find there is the balance of performance versus cost versus speed. So on the chip, on the phone, on, on the device, the IoT thing right at the front, that's where you're going to get the fastest response time because it doesn't have to connect with anything. But you're also going to have the highest constraints, typically in terms of power and speed. Now, if you want to have more power, more speed of processing, and you're not too and and you're not worried about um, uh, latency, the time it takes to get the answers um, at all, then you'll just push it all the way up to the cloud and let Amazon do it somewhere. Mm -hmm. If you're worried about both things, you need it to be as fast as possible, but you also need incredible power. So maybe um, artificial edge, um, uh, artificial intelligence on the edge or facial recognition, dare I say that, um, um, on the edge, then you need, you need to have that processing as close to the kind of detector, the sensor, whatever it is, as you can. And that's where edge can come. Okay. Now, where the operator plays in that, you know, they could be the ones that connect those pieces of kit at the edge. You know, they're just going to be computers with another name. Um, they could be the ones that provide that connectivity. They could even be the ones that provide that kit as well, that hardware. Well, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe they do. I'm, I'm not too sure. I think operators are exploring all of those options because you know they've got <laughs> they're, they're dealing currently in in markets that are beyond saturation, so they've got to find new market opportunities. But can I throw out a uh, a number here then? I, in terms of, I did a study. Um, I did a study on uh, uh, on the amount of data that might be generated by IoT devices by 2025. It's 79.4 zettabytes of data. So that's a huge amount of data. Yeah. So what I thought was, let's try and make that understand. That's more than an exabyte, is it? 
Is there a <laughs> Yeah. Okay. It's, uh, I, can't, I can't remember how many zeros at the end of it. Right. Um, it's a lot. But if you, if you were to make a person a, a bite and you were to fill up London, by, um, London buses with people, you would need 993 quintillion London buses to fit <laughs> in <laughs> 79 zesty humans. Now, how big is that? Virus buses, I know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you put them end to end, they would be bigger than the Milky Way. Uh, that's how much data that IoT is potentially generating. And the, the reason that's important is because with every byte that's generated, transferred, and stored, you've got a carbon dioxide footprint for that. Okay. The amount of carbon dioxide that that generates, get this number as well. And there's, there's lots of caveats to this, but it's 158 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. Uh, is that big? Is that not? Well, if you were to add up the total emissions from China, US, India, Russia, Japan, Germany, that's only 21 billion tons. <laughs> so it's an enormous amount of data. So if we can keep this off the networks and keep it on the edge, there's already an environmental say, yeah. positive impact. Okay, so that's brilliant having you on the podcast, guys. Really enjoyed it. And we, there was quite a lot of material covered in a fairly short time, to be honest. You can be me And I I'll drink all the time Cause we're lovers That is the fact Yes, we're lovers That is the fact Oh, nothing will keep us together We can be them forever and ever Yeah, we can be heroes Just for one day What you say, I say
I've felt that.